Hello there, welcome to this second part of this five-part seminar on the Church of the Contradiction. I have a few people here dotted around. You may ask questions if you'd like at the end. You don't have to. Uh, but I'm doing this from a cocktail bar in Belfast called Rattlebag. And I wanted to take this space and take five seminars to really explore the theory and the technology of parotheology. So in the last seminar, what I looked at is this story. Uh, I told the story of this mystic, evangelical, and fundamentalist, and how they all died, got an interview with Jesus. And the idea, you'll remember, is the mystic uh, knew that he was wrong. So the mystic did have a set of beliefs, did have a set of views about the world, but held them lightly. I saw them really as a type of necessary fiction, a way of orienting or navigating the world, but didn't take them overly seriously. Then there was the evangelical pastor, and the evangelical pastor's beliefs were held with conviction. Uh, they were beliefs that the pastor believed and uh, thought reflected uh, reality, corresponded to the nature of reality. And then there was the fundamentalist, and the fundamentalist also believed his beliefs, but in a very absolute way, uh, holding on to them so tightly that in the story, uh, Jesus himself comes to doubt him, his own beliefs, right? So we have three individuals, three ways of holding belief. One as a type of necessary fiction, a way of navigating the world. Two, we kind of believe we do understand what reality is like, uh, our views on politics, our views on culture, uh, our views on romance. We just take these as ground zero. You know, the way that we raise children or the way we arrange marriages is just taken as the way things are. Uh, a contingent moment is eternalized. Uh, so we think that what we believe and how we interact with the world is the way it's always been, the way it should be. And then the fundamentalist who takes that to such an extreme that they are unable to question it. Right? Now, I want to just cover briefly what I meant when I talked about the hysterical God and the freaked out fundamentalist, which was the title of the other talk. Um, so I want to kind of give a summary of that, and then we want to, I want to move on to uh, really this technology of church and how we... Uh, actually create a space of the freaked out fundamentalist and the hysterical God. So, first of all, the naive telling of the story I mentioned before was that when you hear it, you probably are supposed to identify with the evangelical, right? And then you laugh at the fundamentalist, and at the end of the joke, you're probably meant to think, I should be more like the mystic. And I have lots of friends who are leaders in uh, religious settings who advocate for a type of mystic approach here. Uh, they say that we all have beliefs, but we should hold on to them lightly. We have to interact with other people in the world who think differently than us. And uh, in order for civilization not to be destroyed, we have to have a way of being with and being beside other people. So hold your beliefs lightly, have epistemological humility. Right? So that's a very common position. And of course, it's right in many ways, right? There's lots of things we don't know. It's a basic truism, right? You can go onto YouTube and learn things 
uh, about any subject that you don't currently know. So there is a sense in which, of course, there's lots of information, lots of things we don't know. However, there's also lots of things we do know. We know that bachelors are unmarried men. We know that triangles have three sides. We know uh, how, in the basic way, how organisms develop, become more complex over time. Uh, we know mathematical structures. There's lots of things that we can have confidence that we know. So the question becomes, you know, can we know something fundamental about the structure of reality? You know, so that we're not just relativists. Is there something we can know about ultimate reality and what is that? Right. Um, and so this brings us to the fundamentalist. So in the story, people move from the evangelical to the mystic. What I'm arguing for is that we move from the evangelical to the fundamentalist. Right. Now, in the story, I talked about the hysterical God, where Jesus himself says, how could I have been so wrong? Right. This is a metaphor for the idea that reality itself is divided. The hysteric is someone who feels not at one with themselves. They have identities as a mother or a father or a teacher, uh, as a child, as a son or a daughter, and yet they also feel alienated in their identities. They feel themselves not quite able to ever fully identify with their identities, so they feel themselves divided. The idea of a divided God or an hysterical God is the idea that at core, reality itself has a type of division within it. So that's what the hysterical God meant. The freaked out fundamentalist, that is a way of describing uh, how we encounter that reality, right? So the fundamentalist is so sure in what they believe, and then they confront reality and realize, if you can hear that, there is an ambulance going by. There we go. <laughs> um, the fundamentalist encounters this insight and it so freaks them out that reality has a type of unknowing within it right this is ontological unknowing that this is a disturbing thing and last in the last seminar i talked about how this uh, confrontation is devastating this is not some sort of emancipation where you feel great where you suddenly can breathe where you get into the heights this encounter is something that is traumatic uh, this is something actually you see in people who always have to have a reason why things happen, right? If someone gets cancer, there's a reason. It's God's will or whatever. Now, that's not strange. What is strange is when people believe that about themselves, say they have cancer, and they still have this belief, well, this is God's will, because there's something even more traumatic than having a reason for something that is to your detriment and that is having no reason at all right that is that is traumatizing the idea that maybe there isn't some reason right that's a, quite a terrifying thought so that's the freaked out fundamentalist and in the last talk i expressed how this is an emancipatory experience this opens up something okay so that's what we looked at so far now i want to get into what church of the contradiction is doing in its actual liturgy. Now to do that, I want to define three terms. I want to look at what fantasy is. I want to look at what traversing the fantasy is. That's a 
determine continental philosophy and what subjective destitution means. So these are three terms that I'm going to just cover very briefly and then we'll get into how these can help us understand conservative communities, progressive communities and what I'm attempting to do. Okay, so what is fantasy? At its most basic, you could say that fantasy is our response to the question of what the other wants. When we are infants, we are confronted with the enigmatic desire of those around us. What do they want? And that enigmatic encounter with this, what's called the dasting, the unknown dimension of the other, the desire of the other, provokes an attempt to give an answer. So even with kids going like, where do babies come from, right? They're, they're, they're trying to answer the sexual question, the question of sexuality. Like This is a, a question that generates narratives, generates stories. At its very core, the question that we're all trying to answer is what does the other want? And we attempt to construct answers to that question. So for the infant, I've talked about this before, but uh, Freud noticed that his grandson was throwing a cotton reel away and then pulling the cotton reel back, throwing it away and pulling it back. And he noticed that the infant, the child, was getting so much pleasure out of throwing this thing away and then bringing it back. It's called the Fort Da game, right? And you'll notice this is the earliest game that all of us play. Right? The earliest game a child plays is disappearing and reappearing, hiding and reappearing, throwing something away, getting it back. So children will throw food off a plate and then it'll be put back on, throw it back off. And you can see this enjoyment of presence and absence. And one way of understanding this is the infant is beginning to play with the first experience they have, which is the presence and absence of their caregiver, who is sometimes there and sometimes not. The infant is playing with this experience of presence and absence and getting some control over it, uh, turning this trauma into a triumph, which is what fantasy does, turns trauma into triumph, So, just, and, and this control. But that most basic presence and absence of the child is then redoubled into the presence of a new absence and the presence of the other's desire, which is a present absence. It's there, you feel their desire, you know that they're getting something from you, but you don't know why and you don't know what it is. So in a basic way, fantasy is your answer to that question. That's why your fantasies are not really about what you enjoy, it's your answer to what the other person enjoys. So your fantasies tell you more about how you see yourself related to the other and how the other extracts enjoyment from you. Now, that means that fantasy is a way of covering over anxiety because anxiety arises as a type of affect, a response to the unknown dimension of the other, right? Anxiety is connected to lack to nothingness. Fear is a fear of something. Anxiety is a fear of nothing. But a f not a fear of nothing, a fear of nothing, of nothingness itself. So unlike the existentialists who thought that anxiety was an encounter with your own lack, your own freedom, the fact that 
There's no one can tell you what you should do in the world, what moral dis direction you should take. You ultimately are responsible for that decision with no gods and no nature and no authority being able to tell you. And that's why Sartre said we are condemned to freedom because we're terrified of that experience. We want the tea leaves to tell us what we should do. We want the tarot cards to give us an answer. Right? We want someone to say, should we split up with this person? Should we go out with them? Because it takes courage for someone like Jean-Paul Sartre to, to actually affirm our freedom. It takes courage to embrace the anxiety that ultimately, no matter how much advice you get, you have to decide for yourself. Right? Um, so that's a type of existential anxiety. And there's a lot of truth to that. But Lacan turns it a little bit more and says, well, the most primal form of anxiety is not the anxiety of the confrontation with your own lack. It starts with a confrontation with the others. And so fundamentally, anxiety continues to be, how should I act? And whenever you go away from a party and you're haunted by, I can't believe I said that. And 10 years later, you're still remembering that one embarrassing thing you said um, that nobody remembers, although everybody remembers it and they judge you for it for all eternity. But you know, that that's how it feels. You feel like, oh, I'm so embarrassed, right? That's because you go like, I acted wrongly. What did the other want? There was certain rules of the party, rules within the system, and I broke them and I feel so embarrassed, right? That's anxiety that's driven by not uh, not feeling that you were able to know what the other wanted, that you transgressed it. So fantasy can be seen as a way of shoring up your defenses against the anxiety of the unknown dimension of the other, right? So fantasy shores up your defenses against lack, the lack in the other. And therefore, it also shores up defenses against your own lack. Your fantasy gives you a sense of what will make you whole and complete. It gives you an answer to the other's desire. It gives you a reason you know, a kind of a, a way to enjoy something substantive. So that's kind of what fantasy is in a, in a very basic nutshell. Um, it, it defends against the hysterical God, in other words, right? The hysterical other, because fantasy helps you avoid the fact that this other who you don't know what they want doesn't know what they want either, right? That there's some dimension of the other that is not just a mystery to you, but is a mystery to them as well. So traversing the fantasy, which is a phrase that Lacan uses, um, this means <laughs> the terrifying, uh, well, it means a few things. One, it actually means that you start to understand your desire. So to traverse the fantasy is like traversing a territory. You cover it, you go over it. You find the genre of your fantasy, right? All the sexual fantasies you've had, think of it like a genre like horror movies, comedies, action movies, like there's something fundamental going on in them, right? That you can, and so traversing the fantasy is you discover the way in which you desire. You discover the, the way in which you conceptualize how you think others want you to be. So to traverse the fantasy is kind of in a sense coming to be more aware of how you get enjoyment out of the world. But it also means confronting the reality that there is a navel to the fantasy. And by navel, I mean this gap. There is 
um, a lack where there should be substance, which means you start to realize that your fantasy is an answer to a lack, a way of defending against it, and also an impossible, uh, it's impossible to fulfill that lack. Your fantasy kind of covers over, helps you deny, repress, disavow this, this anxious encounter with lack. So to traverse the fantasy is to realize that, which means uh, something terrifying. It means that you don't really want what you want. Uh, you want to orbit around it. You want to, uh, uh, you can never get the thing that will make you satisfied because you can never get the thing that will satisfy the other because there's nothing that will satisfy the other. So it's this encounter with the, the um, impotence of your fantasies. And that's what brings me to subjective destitution. <laughs> that is a traumatizing experience at first when you realize that nothing can satisfy. Uh, it's not quite that nothing can satisfy. It's that you're satisfied by this continual disappointment. You're, continu you're satisfied by this narrative that can never actually give you what you want. So subjective destitution is this encounter with your fantasy structure, encounter with the lack in the other, basically the encounter with the hysterical God. That is when you become like the freaked out fundamentalist. You encounter this lack. But this is also emancipatory. This allows you to enjoy not having. You don't change your fantasy structures. You just learn that you learn to enjoy them without ever knowing, knowing that they will never be completely fulfilled. So you change your way of positioning yourself relative to your desire. You change the position you take relative to your symptoms. You begin to enjoy not having. You begin to directly enjoy the lack. Uh, and this creates a new being. This is what I mean by salvation. That transforms you fundamentally. You become a new type of subject through that experience of subjective destitution. Okay, so to kind of try to start making this concrete. Um, and by the way, in the next seminar, I'm going to do an interview with Barry Taylor where we're going to talk about what I'm speaking about now and in the last seminar. So we're going to do a conversation to unpack these ideas. And then in the seminar after that, I'm going to give concrete examples of liturgies to actually show what this looks like in concrete form. So those are going to be the next two seminars. But in this one, I want to just contrast a conservative type of church with a progressive church and then with Church of the Contradiction. So within a conservative church, the fantasy, the, the way of dealing with lack is through... Uh, belief. So you'll notice that within conservative settings, say church settings, belief is incredibly important, right? What do you believe? Can you sign up to a particular set of beliefs? There's often doc, uh, doctrinal statements. Uh, now, you can be part of the church without signing up, but if you convert uh, or want to become a member or want to become an elder, then you have to affirm the set of beliefs, right? Now, the trick is Within conservative churches, you don't have to believe the beliefs, right? You just have to say, you have to verbally affirm them. And what I mean by that is, you'll notice like, if someone says God created the universe, that sound, that's a belief, 
And that sounds like an explanation, but it's not an explanation. It's a non-explanation that sounds like an explanation. Somebody said to me recently about a person who was struggling with um, alcoholism. And she said, well, some people's brains are just wired, you know, to be more susceptible to that kind of thing. Now, that sounds like an explanation, but it's not. It's a non-explanation that's taking the place of an explanation. And why? Because it protects from the difficulty of actually having to work out why some people are susceptible, say, to alcoholism and other people aren't. So a non-explanation, a belief, it, it helps you not feel anxious, right? It helps you kind of have a reason why that's happening, but it's not really an explanation. So one thing about the beliefs uh, is often they don't actually say you don't have to believe them. You don't have to have intellectual reasons. There is apologetics and you can read the apologetics if you want and you can get into that, but you don't need to. You just affirm the beliefs. They, it allays a certain anxiety and you know that is useful. I think a really good way of understanding this is an old story from the Soviet Union and it's about Stalin. And Stalin was very insecure because he was killing all these people, right? And he thought, I wonder if people really like me. <laughs> and um, he said, there's a real problem because if I go out and ask people, do you like me? They're of course going to say yes because otherwise I'll have them killed, right? So how can I find out if people really like me? Uh, not fearful that I'm going to liquidate them. So he decides to dress up in disguise and go to this local pub, right? So Stalin gets a disguise on, goes to the local pub, sits down and starts talking to the people in the room and says, you know, here, what do you really think about Stalin? And people would get very tense and they'd start to sweat. They'd look around, you know, all these people who are really listening, you know, secret police, KGB, and they'd go, oh, you know, I, I really like Stalin. Stalin's great. You go like, seriously, like, what do you really think? Oh, no, no, like, Stalin's great. Like, Stalin's cool. Like, here, leave us alone, leave us alone. And he would go around all these tables, get the same response. People getting really worked up, anxious, going, oh, no, I think Stalin's great. Like, stop asking these questions. So he sees one guy on his own at the bar, this guy, uh, Seamus Sofsky, right? And he goes up to this guy, Seamus Sofsky, and he says, um, what, do you, what do you think of Stalin? Guy does what everybody else did in the bar, starts to get tense, look around, and says, oh, you know, I, like, I think Stalin's great. You know, uh, and then he asks again, like, what do you really think? Again, the answer, here, I think Stalin's great. He says, listen, I'll buy you a drink. Take a drink. Takes a drink. Another drink. Says, okay, tell me what you really think. This isn't working. The guy's still really tense. Go, hey, listen, I think, I think Stalin's great. I think Stalin's great. Stop asking me. A couple more pints. And then Stalin says to him, okay, come round the back of the bar. Nobody listening. No KGB. No secret police. Tell me what you really think. The guy goes, okay, I'll meet you there in 10 minutes. And so the both of them go round to the back of the bar in 10 minutes. And Stalin leans in and says to him, so what do you really think of Stalin? And the guy relaxes, sees that there's nobody watching and says, well, okay, to tell you the truth, he says, I think Stalin's great. Now, th this is an interesting story. <laughs> what, what, what's going on? He was saying Stalin was great in the bar. And now when no one's listening, he goes, the truth is, I think Stalin's fantastic, right? Well... This is the idea that there's beliefs that you just have to say 
to yourself and to others, right? The traumatizing, the really awful belief is when you really believe it. That's the thing to be embarrassed about. So within a church, for example, the psychotic who really believes, they are a problem to the conservative church, right? In the conservative church, everyone says they believe, but then it's the person who goes, no, I really think everyone's going to hell and I think we should be out every day of the week telling people. Like, well, calm yourself down, right? You're, you're supposed to say you believe, but, or, or, you know, oh yeah, of course God looks after everything, so don't lock the church at night. You don't have to, and give all of the money away, because God will look after us. You're gonna, we say that, you're not supposed to believe it, right? So the really traumatic thing for a conservative church is not the person who doubts the beliefs. They've got all these defenses against that. It's the person within the church who actually believes it all and does it all. And they will never get very far in the church. They'll never make those people elders and leaders. They'll pat them on the back. But you're not supposed to believe the belief. That is the, uh, that is the, the, the dirty secret, right? That you're supposed to believe, but if you really affirm it like a, like a snake-handling church, there are psychotic structures, there are psychotic churches, but most uh, churches are not psychotic. You're just supposed to say you believe, do it, convince yourself, but not really do all the crazy stuff. And here's the interesting thing. If you are one of those mad people who really did believe, you're more likely to escape. You're the one who destroyed your record collection. You're the one who went out and became a missionary in, in Tajikistan. You're the one who would go out and pray for the sick. And you did everything. You're more likely to get to the center and realize the center doesn't hold than the people who believe and go along and say all of that stuff and don't really take it seriously. So you actually sometimes have to go all the way in. Like it's, it's an escape room where the only way out is to go all the way in. When you go all the way in, it cracks and something else can emerge. And a lot of people who follow my work, that is their experience. They are the ones within their communities who did believe, um, who were like the guy who met Stalin around the back of the bar. It's just, I really, I really do believe that we have to give out all of ourselves to God and, and become missionaries and preach the good news every day, right? And go right to the end. Okay, so that's the concerning. And the reason for the belief, as I say, is not so as you understand reality. It's so that you sure your defense is up against anxiety. So what about the progressive thing? Um, and there's secular forms of all of these, by the way. I gave you one example of the person who says, oh, some people's brains are just wired that way, right? There's loads of things where, oh, political, people have political beliefs that they don't really believe that actually if they were ever to get would, they would be terrified of, right? A political belief that is easy to say, um, but absolutely insane. I mean, I could give some examples. Like, well, like, without being too controversial, there was one that came out, it was years ago now, like, believe all women, where everybody had to say it, and we all had to, you know, supposedly hashtag it. But we all know that you can't do that, right? That's not even possible. It's like doublethink. You can't believe all men, or all women, you can't believe all, <laughs> you, can, you can believe, you can take seriously all women, take seriously all men, but, but you're told to believe all women, you go like, well, is that a belief that you're, you're supposed to believe? No, it's a belief that allays anxiety, that creates group identity, that is, uh, that creates an us and them, et cetera, et cetera. It, it does lots of things, but it's not, it's, a, it's not supposed to be believed, but you can't say that either. Right. You, you have to. So there's two types of prohibition or so there's two types of um, yeah prohibition. 
and uh, Shizek talks very well about this, but in Soviet Union you had it. There's, this, there's a prohibition where you're not allowed to talk about something. And then there's the prohibition where you're not allowed to talk about how you're not allowed to talk about something. So the example that Shizek used is, if you were in Stalin's inner circle and somebody said something bad, and a person said, you're not supposed to say that, they would be liquidated almost as quickly as the person who said it, right? Because not only are you not allowed to say that thing, you're not allowed to say that you're not allowed to say that thing, right? That's, so that's the prohibition of the prohibition. So we see this all the time, obviously, in contemporary culture, where there's things you can't say, and then you can't say that you can't say those things. And it creates all these, these problems because they allay anxiety, create group identity, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and there's loads of them on, on all sides. Uh, then you have progressive liturgies. And progressives, often belief is not important. You can doubt, you can question, you can have all of that, but you engage in certain practices, New Age practices or church practices, that avoid the lack, that give you a way of covering over it. So, for example, a progressive church, you can go, I don't know if I believe in God, I don't know if I believe um, in heaven, I don't know, you know, maybe the devil's a good guy, that's all fine, but move the altar five feet to the right over my dead body, right? And the, the, the church structure has has certainty within it. This is captured beautifully in the story of this British army uh, battalion who are sent over to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And they're sent to this small town in the middle of nowhere. And the commander brings them out one night for a drink. And he says, let me show you a little trick you can play on the Irish. Takes out a bright, shiny one-pound coin and a dirty, crumpled five-pound note. Puts them both on the table. He calls over a guy says, here, you know, would you rather have... Uh, the, the one pound coin or you, this shiny coin would you rather have this shiny coin or this crumpled old dirty note and this drunk guy picks it up bites it in his teeth goes oh I'd love the shiny coin right he plays it with another another guy comes up oh I'll take the shiny coin right they do this and the army are laughing right and there's an American tourist there and she's looking at this confused eventually the army leave and she goes up to some of the guys and goes, do you not know that the five pound note's worth five times more than the pound coin? And this guy, Seamus, looks at her and says, yeah, of course we do, love. He says, but if we took the five pound note, they'd stop playing the game, right? So in other words, this was a system that runs even though nobody believes in it, right? The British army don't believe in it. They're not libidinally invested in belief in this game. And the Irish don't believe in the game either, but the game continues to play. So within a progressive uh, church, for example, you don't have to really believe, but all the songs are about certainty and victory and, and meaning and completeness. And so you're like, you're like a, it's like a fetish object. You know, whenever a child has a security blanket, they know that they're in a room full of people, but they don't feel the horror of that knowledge, right? But then when you take away the security blanket, they feel... They feel the horror of being in a room full of people. The security blanket didn't protect them from knowledge. It protected them from experiencing the knowledge they had. So within progressive setups, and this is why there's a trad revolution at the moment within a very anxious, um, yeah, you know, contemporary modern society, you're seeing a lot of people moving back to traditional religious beliefs, going back to Catholicism. It's happening very much in the left. And it's not about belief. 
right? People are not going like, oh, I believe this stuff. It's I'm part of a tradition that, that allays my anxiety. Being part of this kind of makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger. I kind of imbibe this. New Age beliefs work in the same way. You don't have to actually intellectually believe, but you get the value of the belief. Again, it protects you from the trauma of encountering lack. So those are two ways in which, say, a conservative and a progressive church can operate to protect yourself from traversing the fantasy, from subjective destitution, to protect you from experiencing the hysterical God. So now we come to Church of the Contradiction. What is that trying to do? Well, it is attempting to help you actually encounter lack, not cover over it with belief. So in Church of the Contradiction, the intellectual dimension shows you how there is a fundamental ontological lack, and it does that in storytelling and intellectual ways and whatever, right? But on poetry, but through spoken word, you understand this. And then also um, it helps you through the music and the liturgy to experience that. So the liturgy has within it doubt, complexity and ambiguity within the structure itself. So when you go there, you go there to protect yourself from this traumatic insight, as people often do go to church to protect themselves from this trauma. And the liturgy very gradually helps you encounter it by helping you realize the alienation you experience is within absolute reality as well. And I think I talked about that in the last seminar. That's the movement from alienation to separation. Alienation is redoubled. And suddenly you're no longer uh, in pain about the lack that is within you because you realize that that is what makes you human. That's what makes you relate to every other person. And it's what makes you relate to life itself. That anxiety is not something to overcome. Anxiety, as Kierkegaard shows, anxiety is the evidence of our freedom. Anxiety is something we have to find the courage to embrace. Anxiety is the affect that does not lie, Lacan says. It is the affect that uh, connects us with everyone. And when you realize that, it robs anxiety of its weight. It robs anxiety of its sting. We can enjoy our freedom, um, enjoy mystery, enjoy this antagonism and not be destroyed by it. So I want to say one more thing, and then we'll finish up. I know there's a lot in this. Um, it's how do we do this practically? Um, think about this in terms of analysis. When, when someone goes to psychoanalysis, they often start by believing that the analyst is a person just like them. Now, a person with expertise, they're able to know certain things. They have certain training, so they might be able to help me kind of get my partner back or overcome this addiction or, or overcome my anorexia or whatever it is. And you can call this the imaginary stage where you see the analyst as just a person like you. Now, they have expertise, but they're just a normal person like you. They've got relationships like you. They've got struggles like you. But analysis doesn't begin at that level. That's counseling right, where the person can give you some advice and you can talk to each other and discuss life. But for, for analysis to begin to work, very subtly the person becomes a symbolic figure. They become a stand-in in, in many ways for your mother or your father or your siblings that in a way without knowing it, you start to treat them in the same way as you treated some of your primary relationships and you start to enact 
something there. So they become now a symbolic figure, not them in their particular identity, but a big other, an other that is... Um, uh, kind of echoes your relationship with your mother or your relationship with your father. So you start to say, say things like, oh, you'll hate me when I say this. And then you say something and the analyst goes, why do you think I would hate you saying that? Oh, well, you know, my mother would have hated that, right? You know, so without knowing it, you're treating them symbolically. But then something else has to happen, and this is called the real, where the analyst very subtly occupies the space of that dasting dimension of the other, right? Now, this is partly why you sit, an analyst will often sit behind you. You don't see them. They don't say anything. You don't hear them. There is a gaze without eyes. There is a silence where there should be speech. There, you feel this gaping hole. Right, they become a pure subject. They're not an object with characteristics. Now they're a pure subject without any characteristics. They are just a silence <laughs> um, where there should be uh, speech, and they are uh, a gaze where there should be a look, right? Or should, where there are eyes. And when it's like that, it's you confront that dimension of the other. You can you confront the lack directly and so in analysis you start to dream about your analyst they start to almost take the place of your father i dream, had a dream i think it was my father but maybe it was your face maybe it was you so the analyst has got this interesting space in your psychic life um, and you can begin to traverse the fantasy in the same way in the church of the contradiction you know, people might come to it and engage with this music and spoken word and and and, and ritual but at some point, they will, without realizing it, see this as a stand-in for God or for the absolute. What's happening from the stage is kind of they're projecting onto it their own views of ultimate reality. And what happens in Church of the Contradictions, very subtly, you have to resist giving back what people want. So Lacan once said, the temptation the analyst has to resist is giving the analyzand what they want, which means, what do they want? Well, they want, they want to get rid of their anxiety. They want an answer to their problems. They want to cover over the contradictions and get rid of them, right? And that's exactly what the analyst has to reject, the temptation to give them that, and instead create a space where they can confront that silence, that anxiety, that dusting. That's why you, I had this once, I had an analyst and I had, a, I, I was coming home, I was in America and I, it was, I, I didn't think I should go home and I was struggling with a relational thing and I said to my analyst, I go like, listen, I, I never ask you for advice, this is just analysis, but just this once, I just need you to tell me should I get on that plane tomorrow what do you think and the bastard just said you know have you had any dreams recently right his response is ah just give me just once advice and he resisted the temptation of giving me advice because he's not a counselor <laughs> he's not a friend um he but what he was doing was he was going like well let's stand in let's I want to I'm, I'm with you as you stand in the horror of this space and I want you by asking you about dreams to see what's what's coming up in your unconscious right <laughs> what's what's your unconscious doing so the analyst almost 
helps you bear the unbearable weight of your freedom, um, which is difficult. And, and you'd never pay someone to do that if you thought that's what they were doing from the beginning. That's why you have to believe that they're not going to do that. They're going to do the opposite, give you some good advice and let you go on your way, right? And the analyst has to slowly disabuse you of that. No one's going to come to church with the contradiction if it's like, we're going to confront you with your lack. You're going to go through subjective destitution. Your emancipation is going to be one of pure terror where you're going to have to have the courage to exist in pure dissatisfaction. But that's a lot of fun. That's where all the action is. That's where all the enjoyment of life is. Um, and that's the case already. We just don't know it. So in the Church of the Contradiction, it's confronting you with that enjoyment and helping you directly embrace it. But it is going through a death before you get to the life by putting this doubt, unknowing and complexity into the liturgy. So when I say it resists a temptation, it resists a temptation of the liturgy to give you it's all going to be okay. Almost like the advice of someone saying there's plenty more fish in the sea whenever you break up with someone, right? Because you do want to hear them say, might take you years to get over this and you might not meet anybody and you might have to deal with that. Like, don't tell me that, you know? So, um, but you know, that's it. There's, and you shouldn't say that to somebody, but there's a point when you can help somebody uh, encounter their suffering and mourn. Sometimes you have to say, oh, there's plenty more fish in the sea for a bit, but eventually you have to go, right, no, that's covering over the work, and it's the work of mourning, the work of having to actually come to terms with the loss of the relationship, and you gradually help someone do that. So if you're a friend and a friend's gone through a breakup and they hate their ex, um, the temptation is for you to go, yeah, they were terrible, they were awful, and maybe they were, but let's imagine, you know, they weren't that bad, right? And you're sitting there going, right, should I just affirm what my friend is saying? Well, no, but neither should you contradict them because they're not ready to hear that. You are present to them. You allow them to express that. You allow them to feel that. And maybe after a few months, you hear a little bit of doubt in their voice. You see an opportunity to say, listen, I know you really hate that person. I know you want them dead. But also I think it might just because you're really hurt. And I think, you know, I think you really have to look at that. Like, And then they begin to open up. They begin to look at that hurt. And eventually, years later, they might be able to see their ex go up to them, shake their hand and go, listen, that was a very painful time, but I got through it and I wish you the best and I want the best for you. But you can only get to that point when you've, and you've like done the work. <clears throat> so in a way, the Church of the Contradiction brings you into that experience, but in a way that is enjoyable, right? So it's through music, it's through spoken word, it's through community. You need to be with other people who are opening themselves up to this experience of lack. And that's what we're attempting to do. So I want to stop there and I say next week or next month, for many of you, for my patrons, you'll get this straight away, but for others, these are coming out monthly. Uh, you'll... I'll be having a conversation with Barry and you'll see us unpacking some of these ideas. And then I'll look at, yeah, what, what is, a, what is a, an example of music? What is an example of a sermon? What is the example of a ritual that actually helps us enter into this experience of fundamental lack and help us enjoy it?